Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. I am back from another summer break, rested, invigorated. Hope you had an opportunity to take some time off as well. Perhaps take a trip somewhere. Before I forget, the podcast will be moving to a bi-weekly format, uh, meaning episodes will now drop every other Saturday. As some of you may already know, I'm now hosting another podcast called Wide-Eyed and Reluctant to Ask, which is a mentoring podcast for law students, articling students, and new lawyers. Mentoring is something I take very seriously and which I enjoy very much, one on one and also in this podcast. So I'm juggling those two tasks. And as pleasurable as they are, they do put some pressure on my schedule. So now both podcasts will be on a bi weekly format. Today it's five commonly asked questions about family law and my answers. In two weeks, I will do an episode with five commonly asked questions about family mediation and give you my answers. These really are questions I am asked, and I've selected those that come up most often. Since others are asking, I thought you might be interested in the answers as well. Here we go. Question number one. Do support payments always have to go through the Family Responsibility Office? The answer is no. I'm going to flesh that out a bit, starting with the following statement. All support payments based on a court order go through the FRO by default. But this arrangement can be changed if both parties agree. Let's create a practical example so that I can illustrate my point. The parties are in court about the issue of child support, and the judge who heard the motion made an order for child support. It is presumed by the court and the legislation, meaning written law, if nothing different happens, and I will talk about that different part shortly, 
that the FRO will be involved in transmitting the child support payments from the payor to the recipient. When the court order is made, some forms will have to be filled out either by the lawyers involved or the parties themselves if there are no lawyers. And the court then sends the order to the FRO with those forms. Once the FRO receives the paperwork and puts it into their system, so to speak, the payments go through them. And for the purposes of this answer, I'm not going to go through how that is done and what options the payor has for getting the money to the FRO. At that point, the FRO is also responsible for collecting the payments in various ways if the payor does not pay. So that is the default if nothing else happens. That something else is both parties the payor and the recipient, agreeing not to go through the FRO. They would accomplish that by filling out and signing a notice of withdrawal. The form essentially tells the FRO, we know we have the option of having you continue to be involved, but we want something else, thank you. We want the payor to make the payments directly to the recipient. Which approach is better having the FRO involved or not having them involved at all depends on the specifics of each case. And there are pros and cons to each approach. Now, I began the answer to the question by talking about a court order. What if two people have a separation agreement, for example, but no court order? Can the payments under that agreement still go through FRO if they want them to, or if one party wants them to? In many cases, yes. That would involve registering the separation agreement with the court. There is a very specific procedure for that on which you should get legal advice. That registration has the effect of creating a type of court order. And once that is in existence, yes, the FRO can be involved. You may have noted that I said if one party wants the payments under the separation agreement to go through the FRO. Here, one side can trigger the registration of the agreement with the court. This does not require the agreement of both parties. Question number two, we are separated and my spouse is arguing that our cottage is also our matrimony home. How is this possible? Can there be more than one matrimony home? The answer is yes. Whether a residence qualifies as a matrimony home depends on a number of factors, which include how often it was used by the parties, in what way, how much time the family spent at that residence during the course of a year, for example, and on other factors. It is not uncommon for a cottage to be a second matrimony home if it is winterized, for example, and if the family uses it year-round. 
Another point I wanted to make is that a matrimonial home does not have to be owned by either of the parties. It can be a rented apartment, for example, or a property owned by somebody else, like a family member or a corporation. There are special legal rights which attach to a matrimonial home, both rights of ownership but also of possession, meaning the ability to occupy a property which is a matrimonial home, even after separation. These are fairly complex legal issues, and I don't want to delve into them here. But the strict answer to the question is yes, there can be more than one matrimonial home for a family. Question number three. When do children get to decide where they're going to live? At what age? That is a very, very common question, and the answer is not straightforward. And people get frustrated, really frustrated, when lawyers answer this way, because they're often looking for a black and white answer. And in this case, there really isn't one. Actually, there is one definitive answer to that question. And that is when a young person turns 18, they are an adult in the eyes of the law, and they decide where they're going to live. But when I'm asked this question, it's not usually with reference to 18-year-olds. It's usually about children much younger than that, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds. We do not have a law in Ontario which says that by or at a given age, a child gets to decide where they're going to live. Our law does say that children's views and preferences are always to be taken into account when it comes to their residential arrangements, for example. We say that until they are 18, children have a voice, but not a choice. In other words, they get to chime in, but they do not decide. In practical terms, the views expressed by a five-year-old will be given much less weight than those of a 15-year-old. And there are several reasons for this, including their stage of development, their ability to express themselves freely, the influence of other factors in such preferences being formed, including a puppy in one home, for example, or maybe a parent influencing them. The older the child, the more say, so to speak, they have. And again, what they say does not decide the issue. So when the law says that children's views and preferences are always to be taken into account, the law means that those views and preferences must be considered given the stage of the child's development, their ability to express themselves, and so on. There is also the practical reality. If a 16-year-old boy decides to live with one parent on a full-time basis, it will be difficult to make him do anything different. I mean, there may technically be a court order that the child return to his previous residence or residential arrangements. But if he doesn't want to, 
What is the remedy? Sending the police to get him and to bring him to the other home? On the following day, he will simply walk back to the home where he actually wants to live. So we say that as children get older, and here we are talking particularly about older teenagers, they start voting with their feet. I'm also sometimes asked, often in fact, how a child's views and preferences are actually ascertained, figured out. And there are different ways of doing that, and I will have a more detailed response to that question in another episode. But this area of discussion brings me to another question, which is directly related to what we have been talking about in the last few minutes. So here's question number four. Can we get a judge to speak to my child? My child wants to tell the judge what she wants, where she wants to live. Here is the answer. Judges very, very rarely speak to children. They do. There are very unique and specific cases in which that happens, but again, it's very rare. Speaking to children about issues as complex and impactful as those arising in the context of their parents' separation, including decisions about them, where they will live, and so on, requires very specific training. And for this reason, 99.9% of the time, such dialogue with children to ascertain their views and preferences is left to people who have received such specific training, and that is psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, mental health professionals in general. And even here, not every one of them is equally skilled at this task. The more complex the issues involved, the more focused the expertise of the professional involved needs to be. So, for example, if there is an allegation of abuse against one of the parents and the child needs to be interviewed, that interview should be completed by someone, an expert who has training and experience in this very task, interviewing children, including very young children, about these types of issues. So, overall, I will say that judges very, very rarely speak to children. They do learn about children's views and preferences by receiving them from other professionals who are tasked with actually obtaining them. For example, assessors, professionals completing voice of child reports, those working for the office of the children's lawyer, social workers, psychologists, and even lawyers appointed for the children. Question number five. I made an offer to settle and the other side has not responded. Do they have to? The strict answer to the question is no, they do not have to unless there is an order that they do. So here's an example to illustrate the point. You and your lawyer meet, put together a settlement proposal, and it's sent to the other side in the form of a letter. No response. 
very frustrating for you because you and your lawyer spend a lot of time preparing this offer, making calculations and so on, and you want the case to settle. You were hoping the other side would respond in some way, even if to say, that does not work for me. Actually, there is no rule which says they have to. So that is the strict answer to that question. Whether they should, whether it would be wise of them to respond, is another issue altogether. Modern family law is about dialogue, about discussions, including settlement discussions, all with a view to resolving the outstanding issues. Our laws and our courts emphasize the importance of trying to settle. And that is one of the reasons it's wise to make offers and to respond to offers. If you end up in court, the judge will ask what efforts have been made to settle, if offers have been made and responded to. There is another very important and very strategic reason to make offers, including counteroffers, and that is protecting costs. This is a concept which you should discuss with your lawyer and on which I touched in previous episodes, but not in great detail. It requires some explanation and involves legal concepts. I do not want to get into it here, but you should definitely turn your mind to it and speak to your lawyer about it. Let's get back to my initial answer. I said the other side does not have to respond to a settlement offer unless there is an order that they do. There are points in a family law case, if the court is involved, where a judge may create a timetable for certain things to happen, including the exchange of offers to settle. So that is where such an order would come from. There are also points in a family law case where the exchange of offers to settle is provided for in the legislation. For example, there is a rule that offers are to be exchanged before a settlement conference and attached by both parties to their settlement conference briefs. Not everyone sticks to those rules, and if they don't, they have to be ready to provide an explanation to the judge for why they didn't, but the rule is there. But If you have made an offer in the form of a letter and there is no response, it's because, strictly speaking, the other side does not have to respond. I hope the information I provided in today's episode was of assistance to you. If you have any questions, you can reach me through my website. I have also included my email address in the show notes. Answering common questions is important from my perspective. It helps those experiencing separation get their bearings, think about steps they need to take to move forward. At least I think so. Because after all, it's about helping you navigate your way to a sane split. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app 
will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.